This is Cliff Wilson. Most everybody knows me as Cliff Talon on social media, and you are listening to the Bladeology Podcast. Podcast. We are on this week with a guest host. Uh, we've got Chuck with us. Chuck, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for, for having me. Absolutely. And uh, and we're on this week with a guest. Um, who do we have on as a guest? That would be me, Jason Williams. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Glad glad you could take some time and uh, and jump on with us and and talk about. Talk about knives. Talk about talk about some switchblades. The knife life. Exactly. Um, so, Jason, how did we uh, how did we get here? How, how did we get to this moment? Um, give us give us a little background on yourself. A little background. Well, um, I've been you know into knives ever since I was a, a small child. I remember getting my first knife when I was seven and the ensuing lesson on how to not cut myself, which I promptly did. <laughs> uh, fast forward. Uh, as I got a little older, I've always had a, a passion for making stuff. Uh, I was a, a machine shop vocational tech student in high school and was, you know, tinkering with this and that. And uh, one summer, one Labor Day weekend, we were at a, a music festival that my mom took us to every year, which was always a ton of fun. Um, being a camp out outdoor event, you know, you're outdoors, you got opportunity to bring all kinds of knives and uh there was another guy there who older who was also taking advantage of the opportunity to have a bunch of knives and a mutual friend's like oh you got to meet this kid he's got a million knives too you you guys will get along great and we're shooting the breeze and i introduced him to my mom which one thing leading to another as things do they they hit it off real good uh fast forward a little bit uh that that knife nut was bill McHenry, who at that time liked knives but had never really made one he was uh, a jeweler had his goldsmithery in newport um he'd been doing that for a good many years and uh anyway as he and my mom you know spent more time together he'd come over to our house and we had a little uh, workbench in the basement and you know we just started making knives because it was you know something cool and as not very much time went forward. We started realizing that uh, this is a lot of fun and there's really something to this. He was kind of burning out on the jewelry industry. Um, he was always passionate about the art and the craft and always offended by the kind of base mentality of people who will come in and look at this work that you've done and poured yourself into it and, you know, ask how many grams is it and what's the carat weight of the blah, blah, blah. And that always offended him. So he was kind of getting burnt out on that. And we identified knives as something that you can make and it's cool. Um, so, you know, we started making knives. When you guys started making knives, you, you and Bill are jumping into it. Uh, where did it, where did it start? So, I mean, we all, we're all very familiar with obviously, uh, the Axis Lock and the Infidel um, and, and those mechanisms. And 
you and Bill are both on the names of the, of the, both of those mechanisms. So they are known as the McHenry Williams um, mech, and, and you you have the patent for those. Um, the the Axis Lock, the Axis Lock, we, we were both on the Infidel was something Bill did after uh, I was no longer really at the ranch much. Um, but yeah, the Axis Lock, that, that's actually fast forward a, a good decade from, from where we started. It's in a sense, the Axis Lock was kind of the, the swan song of our creative partnership. Um, where we were really at our peak was in, in the switchblade world. Uh, we had started making hunting knives like most people do. Um, quickly realized that folders were cooler. Um, they also take up, you know, they, they weigh less, they're smaller. <laughs> you don't got to carry as much stuff to the shows. Uh, so we start making folders. Uh, I had some background in assembling stuff and in machining. Uh, and Bill had really unbridled design talent. And we kind of back and forth between us came up with ways of assembling and building. You know, we saw there were a few guys, this would have been like 87 or so, uh, a few guys doing really innovative stuff in the knife world and just legions of imitators. Uh, so we started looking at, okay, let's, let's not be among those legions. Let's try to solve the problems differently. Um, and, and that was kind of the driving force at the beginning was for the first couple years, we never made the same mechanism twice in a row. There was always something structurally different. Sometimes it was stuff you could see and feel. Sometimes it was construction related. Um, but it was always an attempt to push the bar higher. Uh, and that was kind of what led into making switchblades, different types of switchblades. Uh, the switchblades were also uh, kind of prompted by... Uh, the financial disaster in 1990 in Rhode Island. Um, you know, we'd been making knives and getting a feel for design and, a, and a, a feel for what we were wanting to make. And there was a knife dealer who was a really interesting guy, Pete Barabo. He had kind of an eclectic array of stuff all the time. Uh, and at that time, switchblades were either antiques or uh, European stuff that had come back from Europe from, uh, you know, with, with a service member. They were really rare and hard to get. Uh, and he had said, man, you guys make a switchblade. I'll give you $500 cash. Which at the time, you know, okay, that's, that's a lot of money. At that time, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, uh, when the governor, new governor took over, he had all the, uh, credit unions closed down because there was just massive fraud, theft, and abuse. Um, and all of our money from all of our, you know, my personal account, mom and Bill's personal account, everything was locked up, but the mortgage was still due. Yeah, it was it was grim. So he calls Pete Barabo up and says, you ready to buy that switchblade? Cool. So he goes in the shop and made a, uh, like a Ubertus lever release with a liner lock. And that was the first switchblade he made. And then 
then I made a couple, um, and, and that kind of started it. You know, it was either it was very taboo at the time. The people at the NCCA were like, you know, that's that's the devil's knife. You're going to get us all arrested. It's blah 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 blah. But it's like, well, we could either eat or not. So you guys can pound sand. Um, and so we started making switchblades. And somewhere in that time frame, uh, Bill had met Richard Wright at a gun and knife show. At that time, Richard was a gunsmith who did a little bit of knife making, and he is now a knife maker who does a little bit of gunsmithing. Uh, and yeah. Uh, so anyway, he had come by one day and sat down with Bill and, and talked about how a, a sear works, you know, how you get from this light trigger here to releasing this spring-loaded piece there. You know, this might be something you can do something with. And hot diggity damn, that was something Bill could do something with. Um, and the base idea for that went back and forth between the three of us. Not like, not like the three of us passing one model, one knife back and forth, uh, but working individually. And within less than a week, the bolster release switchblade came into being. Uh, Bill and Richard and I did actually do a short run. We had this idea we're gonna we're gonna produce these knives together, and very small number actually got made. It really basically turned into each of us making knives. Um, so there, there was that, and Richard really took off with the bolster release. Um, Bill and I made some. And then we kind of went down a rabbit hole of push buttons because, man, push buttons were cool. You know, it looks like a switchblade. And that was something that was really important where at that time and still now, there's a certain certain customer that wants a hidden secret mechanism, which is a very cool trip. But we kind of had this attitude concept of no this these are not automatic knives these are fucking switchblades and we wanted it to look like a switchblade <laughs> i mean there's uh, there's merit to that there there are a exactly. lot of customers who are who are want concealed mechanisms if, if they're yeah. in an unfriendly area but some people want it to be overtly what it is they, they want know, the mech shown personally i don't think that the secret mechanism aspect is as real and so far as the, the law because it's not like you're going to demonstrate to the officer how your knife works. I mean, it doesn't really work like that. If a cop wants to know what your knife is, he's going to take it out of your hands. He's going to say, here, hand me that, and he's going to look at it. Uh, but that doesn't take anything away from the very real fact that having a secret hidden mechanism is wicked cool. Um, and I'm down with that, but I, we just it's like decided to go that other route. So anyway, we get into push buttons, probably skinned that cat a couple dozen different ways. I mean, for a very long time, every knife was one of a kind, visually and mechanically. Um, and then we kind of settled into the latch release, which streamlined button locks or button releases by making them wicked thin. 
You know, you don't have to have a teeter-totter with a button over it or a teeter-totter with a button attached to it. You just blow right through with the teeter-totter. And, I mean, we could do that with a 332nd bolster and a 40,000 sliner, although a little bit thicker is a heck of a lot better. But, nonetheless, you could do it that way. Wow. All right. So, I yeah, that's it, it was getting real in there. Like, you guys It were, was getting real, man. We were cooking with it. I mean, by this time knives were going for much much more i mean we had started five hundred dollars was a big deal um and by the time we stopped making switchblades i mean i was averaging you know thirty five hundred uh bill was doing some in the five and six i mean they got ridiculous you're spending hundreds of hours carving you know a typical um I hate to say run of the mill, but I mean, I was putting a hundred hours into a typical knife. Um, and you start reaching over the top with stuff. It was just intense. Um, and the shows, that was another aspect to it was, was, it was something we both always liked about the shows was that knife makers as a whole aren't really um, you know, social butterfly people, person types, they're almost all maybe not quite misanthropic, but more at home by themselves in their shop. Uh, but then we would, we would gather in different places around the country and it was like a meeting of the tribe. And it wasn't just a meeting of the tribe, but a meeting of the tribe where we're all trying to sell and there was a, an analogy that Bill really liked. Uh, he called it mastodon hunting. You know, and the mastodon was the cash. There you <laughs> so go. So the, 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 the tribe is gathering from all corners of the glacier, you know, where we're going to meet up and we're going to chase down some mastodon and we're going to bring home the meat <laughs> to the way. I mean, it was Bill loved analogies and so do I. But anyway, uh, and we really thrived on that, um, pushing ourselves to come up with something wicked cool. You know, he was making his knives, I was making my knives, but we were both working on opposite sides of a round table. And we would run ideas past each other, and we were compassionately brutal. You know, if you had a bad idea, it was going to get mentioned. <laughs> I mean, that's good. Um, that's what you want. And, and anybody who wants brutal honesty, you know, don't, don't, don't sugarcoat this. Um, exactly. And hey, I, I'm trying to accomplish this. How, you know, what, do you, what are your thoughts? How do I accomplish that? You know, um, it, was a, it was a great time. We were, we were able to really push the creative envelope uh, both collectively and individually. You know, Bill. I taught him some things about putting stuff together, but he still essentially self-taught how to create mechanisms. Uh, likewise, I designed my own knives, but he taught me how to design. Uh, so, I mean, we're working together yet individually. It was, uh, it was a hell of a time, you know, we, we, accomplished some stuff and we were both very proud of what we accomplished. Uh, and it was during that time 
that we were trying to come up with something new all the time. We kind of embarked on a disciplined search for a different mechanism. Uh, we both made, you know, slip joints, lockbacks, but we both preferred the liner locks from the very beginning because we felt they were ergonomically superior. You could open and close the knife with one hand. Um, yeah, you got to move your thumb across the line of the blade. There is that. But anyway, we both preferred it. Right. But okay, what else is there? What else could we do? How else might we lock a knife open? Hmm. So the discipline search ensues. Um, that one was very much a, a collaborative work. Uh, I can't necessarily nail down the specifics of who came up with what idea. Right. Because um, it's a long time ago. Uh, but anyway, we come up with the axis lock. Uh, and Bill's like, you know, this is, this isn't the same, this is something else. Uh, and I think instead of, uh, just making them and selling them and then seeing everybody else make them within a year, let's patent this and try to sell it to, uh, Benchmade. Hmm. Uh, actually, yeah, can I back up a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Um, Somewhere around 93 or so, um, we had gotten into the latch release switchblades and decided, you know, this was, this was awesome. We had a, a method um, to make these, which it was one of those things that, I, I mean, a lot of, you know, people would look at it. There's a lot of machinists and engineering types and say, well, well, how did you machine that? Um, and well, actually the trick was I would put bluing on the steel, scribe lines, put it in the vise, and do it all with a file. And that's how you can do stuff that you can't do on a milling machine. Mm, there you go. Uh, all right. So anyway, we, we were making these, and we were selling them, and we had a lot of tight friends, you know, guys like Ralph, um, Steve Hill, Bill Sandin, um, J.D. Uh, Richard was, was really doing his own thing with, with those rich boys. He's like, well, Let's, let's show these guys how we do it. And we actually had a weekend after a knife show. Um, those guys who I just named came to the ranch. And when you teach somebody something, it forces you to think it through differently than when you're just doing it. Um, so it really helped us distill what we were doing. It also, you know, helped some of our buddies make knives that were going to sell better than what they were doing. And it also gave us and our mechanism some credibility. Because now we're not the only, you know, couple of long-haired guys from Rhode Island making this thing. There's now a few guys making this thing, um, you know, and it strengthened the tribe. And, you know, those guys were making this and those guys took a few close confidants into their confidence and then taught them how to do it. And, and that was really when the New England style of knife became the New England switchblade knife. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, it, it developing like that. Exactly. Exactly. And it was, uh, it was great times. 
um, really great times. Um, and it wasn't like there was, it, it wasn't like we had to protect what we were doing. So, you know, it's not like we had to say, well, these guys are going to be selling to the same customers. It's like, yeah, but you can only make one knife at a time anyway. And if I'm making these knives, it's generating interest in them. And this customer will now start looking at your knives. And if you're making these knives, you're drumming up new customers who are now interested in mine too. So, I mean, there's a, there's a, a rising tide bringing up all the ships aspect to it. Okay. And, uh, that, and they were, it wasn't like everybody in their brother was really going to make them because they were just colossally difficult. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not a fixed blade. That's for sure. No. No. Yeah. So anyway, we were doing that. We have the discipline search for a mechanism. We find a mechanism. So, okay, we're going to patent this. Um, how do we do that? Oh my God, look at how much that costs. So I, I mean, I was out of school by that time. I had uh, like a two and a half year associate's degree program in, in mechanical engineering. So, I mean, I had some basis for how to do the research and some basis in, uh, I had to take a couple of technical writing courses. Um, so anyway, I did the base patent research drew up the first draft of the patent. Uh, we had hired a lawyer who just totally sucked, um, got rid of him, got a different lawyer to do the patent search. Um, so then I take his stuff and I write rebuttals to all the challenges. And basically I wrote the first patent, the original access lock patent um, was written by me and then fine-tuned and filed and brought through the system by an actual lawyer because that's how we could afford to do it. Um, and that was one of the most challenging things I've ever done. Hmm. It's just a colossal, I mean, it makes your brain hurt trying to read a patent. Oh man. Yeah. I've, I've looked at a few. It's uh, it's pretty tricky. It's not for the faint it of is. heart. No. And we just couldn't afford to be faint of heart. Right. So we did this thing uh, and we knew that we wanted to go with Benchmade. There were, not too many other outfits in that time who were doing that level of work. You know, you got your pinned together manufacturers. I mean, at that time, Camillus was mostly that way. Uh, there were very few companies that were screwing knives together and doing anything res resembling, you know, technological manufacturing. We had met Lester a number of times. Um, that whole dance uh, of how we got in the door there um, is a whole nother story. Uh, quite a time. Uh, quite a time. So uh, and it did was, he, would he frequent shows back then? I mean, would yeah. he? I mean, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Through, through shows. Lester knew everyone. Uh, we'd seen him at like guild shows. Um the Eugene show. Um, Lester was very much a true believer of knife nuts. He, he was not a guy who ground out blades by hand. Um, he was more like, uh, rather than being like a guitarist, he was more of a band leader. 
he caused knives to be made. Um, and he, uh, he, like Bill, was a push-the-envelope guy. Uh, and he and Bill had a, a complicated relationship. Um, we all did, really. Um, but yeah, he, he saw it. He, he had the vision. He saw what this was. At that point, he was a little... A little gun shy about you know jumping into bed with us right away because he had just had a bad experience with another business partner. And this would have been like this was well after Pacific Cutlery. This would have been like right after. Uh, it would have been like ninety six, ninety seven. So, anyways, that all finally kicked off. We went out to Benchmade, you know, to the mothership with uh, a handmade, micarta-handled, more or less fully developed axis lock that I still have. It's in my gun safe as we speak. Uh, and we spent about a week. Um, compromises were made, like that recurve in the blade on the 710. That wasn't us. That was another one of the executives at Benchmade who thought that would be awesome. And we just had to suck it up because we wanted to make sure our thing got done because we didn't want to get into a pissing contest over this thing, which it would have been tricky. Oh God, I hate that. But anyway, uh, we spent a week. We came up with, there were a lot of things we wanted them to do on the knife that it's like, well, we're, we're not going there manufacturing wise and stuff that, you know, ultimately they did because they, one of the great things about Benchmade was that they're, you know, their capabilities and their willingness to push those capabilities grew. Um, you know, that's the difference between sinking and swimming. Uh, so anyway, we, we, we did that and then it came out. Um, it took a long time. Uh, it, it created a huge stir very quickly. Um, it took a long time for the substance to meet height in some respects uh, but you know it ultimately did it, it became one of the most successful mechanisms in the industry um, unfortunately like I said before it was kind of Bill and mine's creative swan song the focus had to shift from what we had been doing to what we were doing and it never came back. Um, handmade, one-of-a-kind knives was who brought us to the dance. And we neglected that. We then focused maniacally on how do you top that? You know, and, and we're talking about a product that brought the company we brought it to I mean, I'm not saying it was just the axis lock. It wasn't just the axis lock. It was the axis lock and the way they operated their business. But during that time frame, they went from a seven-figure business to an eight-figure business. And that wasn't all us, but we had been part of it. And we felt this need to top that. And that just, it just wasn't working, you know, and, and, Things were getting weird at the shop, and that was about the time when I, uh, well, I 
wife and I got married. Actually, we weren't married at that time, but we bought our first house. It was a big fixer-upper, which I started focusing more on that and less on the uncomfortable situation that I would walk into when I went to the shop. Um, and then I, you know, ultimately took a job outside of the industry because I needed health insurance. Um, stepped away for a good five years. Uh, Bill and I, you know, got the band back together, so to speak. And we tried real hard for a few years. Um, but again, what we were doing, I spent like three years working on a couple of Benchmade projects that never saw the light of day. Uh, and it's like, this ain't working. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the access lock was a great and significant thing in my life and in his life. Um, but it really marked the end of a powerful era. I, I mean, that's, you know, that that's so tricky. And it, I can hear, you know, there's a certain amount of, of heartbreak there when you, when you create something that so powerfully affects, you know, people in an industry and you do that with somebody else, you know, I, I can totally understand the, the drive to just do it again. I mean, you know, that's. After the access lock came out and started to get big, Bill was almost exactly like Jimmy Page after Zeppelin split. It's like, now what the fuck do I do? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, uh, the access yeah. lock is, it sold millions and millions and millions yeah. and millions of knives. And, and like you said, it's, I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm going to bat for you on that one and say, yeah, I think a lot of the times it was the access lock. Cause like you said, it's one of the few locks out there aside from maybe the Spyderco compression lock, which is recent, um, that you don't have to move your hand or your finger in front of the, in front of the line of the blade. So I think, that invites so many newcomers um, to knives that they feel comfortable operating just because they don't, you know, they don't have to do that. They can just, they can actuate the lock and close the blade, you know, without fear of it, of it cutting them. Um, Ergonomics is really everything. You yeah. know, something that Ralph Silvideo articulated very well early on, you know, back when we were all still making straight knives, He'd said that a uh, a knife has to really look like something or they won't come over and pick it up. But when they pick it up, it has to interact with their hand in such a way that they don't want to put it down. Then they pay you. <laughs> then, then they give you the money, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that I think, is the way I it think, works. <laughs> I think that might have actually been, uh, I think Bargely might have said that first. There you go. I don't remember. I mean, commerce is an important part of, of everything. You know, it's the, it's the underlying pulse of, of most industries that people don't just do for, for free anyway. Right. Yeah. We're all deeply passionate about eating. Right. On a daily basis. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's really great. And the rent and taxes are always due. So it's just Aren't they? the way it works. Um, so going, going back a little bit. Um, sure. You talked about something that actually... I love talking about, and we talk a lot about on this podcast, is going to knife shows, which is probably oh, yeah. like the single greatest part of the knife industry. Uh, and for those who haven't been, you need to fix that. We're living in a new world, but hopefully that will continue. So t tell us a little bit about 
Um, tell us a little bit about your your show schedule back in the day. You're talking about the Eugene show. Um, uh, yeah, we started doing that one a little bit later in the game. At first, you know, we did the NCCA shows um, and a couple of gun and knife shows. Um, like the Big East, I did the Big East a couple times. Man, that was brutal. Trying to sell fancy knives to gun guys in that time frame. I mean, I started, I sold my first knife in 88. Um, so, I mean, the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, what the hell would anybody want a $200 knife for? You ain't going to gut a deer with no $200 knife. I actually had that conversation with some individual at a, uh, at a gun show, and it was just brutal. Anywho, uh, so we did those. Um, Bill's sister and brother-in-law lived down in Florida back then. Um, we recognized right away that New York and Florida were our best areas for knife sales. Uh, New York, obviously, there's a lot of money there. Um, and people, well, people all know where New York is, you know. So we were doing the uh, the New York show. We started with that one. That was like our first big show back when it was in the Roosevelt Hotel, which was always a trip. And the Roosevelt was a trip. Uh, but we would do that one. And we had a couple shows down in Florida, which is where Bill met Steve Hill um, and some of the Florida guys. Um, and we used to love doing the Gator show, which was in it was Super Bowl weekend, which is a beautiful time of year to not be in New England. Um, so we, we would do those. Uh, we didn't ever display at the Blade show. We'd go to it every now and again. Um, I hate to use the term brown bagging because we didn't really bring a lot of inventory. Normally when we went to a show, we would only have a knife or two each to sell. Um, and the idea being obviously to try to get new customers. Um, but the reality often being, uh, dealing with the dealers, you know, some of them are easier to deal with than others. Right. That's always uh, the case. Yep. Isn't yeah. it? Isn't it? But you know, Hey, those guys, as hard as they, they grind you down, um, in principle and in reality, they find new customers for you who ultimately do contact you directly. Uh, so anyway, we would do those two, eventually the Guild. Um, I don't remember when we started going to Eugene. Bill went to it before I did, and then we both went for a few years. Um, I want to say we first started doing the Guild. The uh, first time I went was in Orlando. I think it was in Orlando. It was in Orlando for a long time. Um, and then there was a year that it was in Vegas. And the year it was in New Orleans. So we would do, say, three or four big shows a year and a couple of club shows. I mean, that's, you know, that's still... Uh... The club shows are nice. They're smaller. They're intimate. You know. Yeah. They're, they're still. They're still pretty much like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now, did you guys do, or did you do the the SwitchCon show? Yes, the SwitchCon. Yeah, that was. Uh, those were heady days, man. I remember that well. Actually, I still have the T-shirt. 
I just uh, just looked at it in the closet recently. Uh, there was uh, the Valentins out on the West Coast, Butch, Sean, and Rainey. Incidentally, uh, if you can get Rainey Valentin, you want to talk to him. Anyway, uh, they were a West Coast Switchblade family who had started in the same general time frame as us, and we and they had been working without knowing of each other for quite a while, had actually come to a certain number of identical conclusions on construction and had very different uh, design sense, uh, but very much overlapping philosophies. Um, we really headed off with them. They are, Valentins are great folks. Unfortunately, uh, we just, we, we lost Sean a few years ago and Butch just passed away this last year. Uh, a true pioneer in switchblades. But I digress. He met, uh, he, he went down there. He'd come out to their Rhode Island show. We'd had a Rhode Island switchblade show. There was kind of a loophole in Rhode Island law saying that, you know, switchblades are illegal except for collectors, law enforcement, and military. Um, so, hey, collectors, you're in. So yeah, we, we you started having these shows and it, it really started picking up steam. Um, one of the collectors, I'm not sure where Irv found out about us, but uh, I'll just go with first names because, you know, I don't want to, I don't know what people want the world to know. But anyway, he, he got really into it uh, and he wanted to sponsor putting on this show and get a lot of the switchblade makers together and guys from all over the country showed up to talk about the future of switchblade knives and what are we going to do at that time? Uh, I, the federal switchblade act is still in effect, I believe. Um, so basically interstate commerce is a no, no, uh, but it turns out nobody actually cares, but technically, you know, you can't have an organization who's, sole purpose or driving purpose is to do something that's illegal. So we, we actually had this meeting where we all got together to talk about, are we going to lobby to change this law? Are we going to fight it to the Supreme Court? Does anybody have the kind of resources to pull that act off? Um, that didn't really go far because it turns out none of us really has the resources to fight that fight. And since it turns out that nobody actually cares who has these knives, it just kind of blew over. But uh, all of these Switchblade guys getting together for the SwitchCon, it was one of the best times. Uh, and there were just so many really good makers there. And I can't even remember all of them. There were a handful of the guys from Florida. At that time, Steve Hill still lived in Florida. Um, Rex Robinson, uh, a couple other guys who made autos. Uh, the Jim and Judy from the Middle West, they had been making autos since back in the dark ages. Um, amazingly talented. I want to say they were there. Um, man, I, it's so long ago. I just lose track. I remember Richard went down there, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, man, it was awesome. And uh, the dinner was epic. You know, it was an awesome thing. We would go to these knife shows and be treated like rock stars. You know, the, the makers and the dealers and the collectors would all go to these 
dinners that are just flat out outside of my pay grade. And the dealers would pass the hat and pay for the whole thing. I think the dealers and the collectors, it was just epic, man. They, they treated us like rock stars. Um, we loved it. <laughs> I mean, that's, Hey, that's not, that's not a bad way to go. You know, go, go to a yeah. show, get, get dinner. That's uh, and then not have to put the bill. That's a bonus. I mean, that's, that's nice. You know, that, and we that's, would still be nice. completely worn out because, you know, you put every, you know how it is. You show up at the knife show, you have buffed the tips of your fingers off. You've been cut a few times. Um, you haven't slept. You don't sleep while you're there because it's sparkle, sparkle, sparkle. You're on stage. Uh, and Bill was maniacally focused in many ways. And I mean, he wouldn't sleep for days and days and days. And he would take typically a week uh, when we got back before he could even really walk much. He would literally crash out on the couch, get up, eat, lay back on the couch for five, six days. That's the uh, I need a vacation from my vacation scenario. Hey, it wasn't vacation, man. It was work. <laughs> right. It was work. Yeah, I mean, shows are... Um... It's uh, it's a special time because you know everybody there is doing pretty much the same thing. You know, even if even if you're a collector, you've been saving to come to these shows to spend the money. If you're a maker, yeah. you've been making to come to this show. If you're a dealer, pretty much the same thing. You've been saving to come to this show. So it's it's a real uh, it's a real treat to to go to a knife show and experience the the vibe that that kind of surrounds the whole crowd there. Absolutely, because all of us. You know, knives are an obscure enough thing that you tell people you're into knives, a fair percentage of people look at you like you're kind of weird. Uh, and when you go to these things, you're in a room full of people, you know, who not only don't think you're weird, but they're all weird. And it, it, there's a synergy to it. Yeah. Everybody is there for one thing. That's it. Yeah. That's it's it's a. Uh... It's a mono-focused event, and 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 that is that is the knife, the the reason to to congregate in in a large crowd for sure. That's right, and and what we always called the mosh pit. You know, you got the show goes from whenever it goes to whenever it goes, but then after the show closes, people gather in these motel lounges and passing knives around, and that's where the real action the show always was, in my opinion, was as we called it the mosh pit. Um, deals are made, ideas are discussed, stuff gets, you know, drawn on napkins, uh, ideas thrown around. Yeah, those are great times. Yeah. Oh, it's, uh, it, it is quite good. Um, yeah. so now tell me a little bit, uh, we'll sort of work through the timeline here. So we're talking a little bit about shows. Um, you, you mentioned that you sort of had a little background in machining, yeah. Um, how, I mean, how extensive was your background opposed to when you started and then when you finished? Uh, well, I mean, when I started, I had been, uh, the high school I went to had a vocational program. So I would do my academics for half the day. And then I would spend half a day in a machine shop learning how to use lathes, milling machines, surface grinders. Uh, I've made a bunch of little hand tools and stuff that I still own kind of a, a base program that was designed to get people ready to go into an apprenticeship. Um, and I, I, 
excelled at it, thrived on it, and from that got a uh, scholarship to go to a technical college of my choice. So I went to uh, Thames Valley Technical College in Connecticut, um, which is now named something else. But anyway, uh, and I did a mechanical engineering associate's degree program um, where I learned, you know, what passed for, you know, computerized stuff at that time. I literally had to do a tapematic program. It's, it was that out of date even then. Uh, the state of the art was the, uh, uh, hell, I don't even remember what kind of computers were state of the art back then. So anyway, uh, I had the mechanical engineering half degree and a few years of a machine shop apprenticeship type program. Uh, we bought an old lathe, an old milling machine, and an old service grinder of the types that are you know around in southern New England to this day. Uh, we didn't have anything that was computer or, or numeric controlled. We would uh, clamp dial indicators onto stuff to get accurate idea of where you're going. But the bulk of what we were doing, I mean, there were a few machining operations. I was machining out pivots, uh, modifying hardware, that kind of stuff. Uh, surface grinding to get flat after forging. You know, we would take a piece of Damascus, forge out the blade, cut it off, surface grind it, and make a folder out of it. Uh, so we were using, you know, state-of-the-art 1940s machinery. You know, the good stuff. Um, a, a belt grinder that Richard built for us. Uh, and a forge. He also built our gas forge. Um, we did have a nice modern heat treating oven and just masses and masses of hand tools. You know, we did a lot of stuff with jeweler saws, files, um, that kind of stuff. Um, so not necessarily high tech machining. Um, we did a lot of things that would make an air quotes, real machinist shudder. But on the other hand, you know, <clears throat> all about the end goal. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 the it's the end it's the end product. No matter how you get there, everybody gets mm. there in their in their own way. Yeah, I've noticed that. I've noticed that uh, when we started doing work with Benchmade and talking to other designers, um, you real you know design philosophies vary dramatically. You can almost tell when a knife maker used to be a machinist. As an aside, I don't know how many times we've all heard a guy say, well, I'm a machinist, so this will be easy. Yeah, right. sure. Try it. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, but there's a an overwhelming tendency for people to either, you know, like design a blade and a handle because a knife has a blade and a handle. And frankly, that sucks. <laughs> you, design, you design a piece. You know, we would design, create a line, different types of curves evoke different emotional reactions. Hmm. And so are you going to make a gentleman's knife or a scoundrel's knife? You're going to go with different lines and proportions 
to, to get them. And, and that was one thing that Bill had tremendous experience with. He spent decades designing rings and pendants, which are tiny. You got this tiny little panel of work. And again, you got to reach out, grab them by the eye, bring them over, reach into their soul and elicit an emotional response. And his design capability did that. Uh, and whether it was designing the knife, the ornamentation, which again, you can either make a knife and ornament it, or you can make a knife based on where you want the ornamentation to go. And, I, you know, done both ways, and it's all viable. Uh, but designing in such a way that you access their emotional state, to me, far surpasses a blade and a handle. You know what I mean? If, if, you, can't, if you can't grab people visually, um, yeah, I mean, you're... you're... You're in tough waters. That's uh, yeah. that's that's true. You know. Yeah, yeah. If it doesn't look like something, they won't pick it up. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's that that can be that can be tricky. Um, Ralph Ralph's video also had an innate sense of the dramatic use of proportion. All right, t tell me a little bit about that. So, uh, Richard uh, sent me a picture of him bill and ralph and they're at a show holding um oh, shoot. the valkyrie yeah and it's just like yes it's a pretty amazing picture because everyone's got so much hair and it's clearly like a time and like it's, yeah it's pretty metal like it's actually like it looks like an album cover because you have these three you know, guys and they're just like yeah. everyone's like mustachio joe and it's like really like it's intense. So tell tell me a little bit about about Ralph. Tell me tell me about that that, that picture a little bit. What what what's the what's um, the mystery about Ralph or about the picture about the knife? Um, sure, all of the above. All of the above. All right, we met Ralph really early on at one of the Varnum Armory shows, I think, um, and he had learned to make knives. He had been making knives long before we had, and. I don't want to say that he learned from Norm Bardsley, but he lived nearby to Bardsley. Uh, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was a, a he made flashy, big, flashy stuff. Um, and he, very dramatic fantasy knives, boot knives, that kind of stuff. Uh, and so Ralph kind of followed down that he made a lot of very dramatic boot knives. Um, anything from really big to more, you know, concealable. Uh, but yeah, he, he made fighting knives predominantly. Um, he was, uh, he, Ralph was a real interesting guy. Uh, talented electronics worker who did and he did a lot of cool stuff. Um, anyway, we, we met him early on uh, and got to hanging out with him in the same general time frame as we had met Richard. Uh, Richard lived closer, so we saw him more often 
Um, the Valkyrie was one of very few collaborations Bill did. He didn't, you know, Bill was a very personable guy and he played well with others, but there were very few people he was willing to work with. Uh, and he got into this design concept somewhere talking between the three of them and it just started getting bigger both physically and conceptually it had to be the biggest we, we found historical pictures of large switchblades and the biggest switchblade we could find was whatever size it was so it had to be an inch bigger than that um it had to be the new bolster release mechanism. Uh, lots of deep carving. Uh, and it kind of divvied up the work. I remember Ralph ground the blade. Bill did the carving for the model that was then cast in the bronze. Richard did... Uh, certain amount of machining and fitting. I remember I did a certain amount too, but I was, I wasn't like part of it, part of it. I just kind of helped out because there was this really awesome thing going on. Uh, and then they built this stand for it. There were uh, cast bronze owl's feet. Um, or it might've been hawk's feet. I forget. There was, oh no, I do remember now. It's, it's kind of a six person. We'll save that. Uh, on top of these maybe oryx horn or ibex horn stand. Uh, so anyway, the idea was it had to be just completely over the top in every way, shape, and form. It was all about excess. And I want to say Mad Mike bought that. I remember when you had Richard on, he thought, I forget who he said he thought bought it, but I, I can swear it was Mike. Again, saving the last name. Actually, no, Mike got into the knife business. I think Mike Tulanian had that knife. But I'm not positive because, again, it's a long time ago. Right. I mean, I, I love that the whole thing has to be intense. It has to be over the top. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Know, Every step of the way. Right. <clears throat> it's all, all about outdoing the last build, you know? I mean, that's that's crucial. That's If you're going to do it, go, go big or, mm. or get the heck out, you know? Right, right, right. You could do something tasteful, but what's the point? Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, screw it. Just go, go right, for it. Right. Um, so, so Ralph, uh, JD, Richard, we got a, we got mm -hmm. a couple of, we got a couple of characters, um, mm -hmm. and then we have the New England Switchblade School yep. and slash yep. Movement. Um, and Bill Sandin, uh, yeah. Steve Hill, okay. yeah. Um, and then a number of other guys in the area. Um, I want to say, if I'm not mistaken, Chuck, didn't you learn folder making through Ralph? I spent a little bit of time with Frank Potter, just basically learned some basics for liner locks. Yeah. But I pretty much self-taught myself. I, you know, I, I met you and Bill at uh, Cove Cutlery at Cove, yeah. in, I think it was 1997. Yep, yep. And 
Ron had put on his show and you guys came and, you know, checked out people's knives and, and looked at my stuff and kind of gave me, you know, a little direction and said, you know, try this or try that. But it was all pretty much trial and error for me. Well, that's you know, really I, the best way to do it. I mean, I'd you look know. at people's knives and I'd say, all right, you know, try to figure it out myself. And a lot of trial and error, a lot of making new handles for blades and new blades for handles. Because, you know, sometimes I'd cut the hole in the blade and the tip of the blade would peek out when the knife was closed. So, so you then you're going to yeah. Yeah, yeah. either make a new blade or make a new latch and just constantly re figuring out what to do to make it work. You know, that's a very important point. You know, when I, when I mentioned that, you know, these guys came over and we, we showed them what we were doing, that's not the same as, um, it's not like their knife and folder making. You, you, you can show it, you can't really teach it. You got to kind of figure it. And uh, all of the guys who came and we showed them what we were doing, everybody had to figure it out on their own because there's no other way to really do it. And you get in there and you're playing three-dimensional chess and you're doing calculus on a cocktail napkin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm still building autos now and I've built a lot yeah, more I've, I've, I've seen this your stuff year on, on the book base. Than, than I have in a long time. And I've got guys messaging me saying, hey, can you show me how to do this? And I'll say, well, I'll point you in the direction, but you got to put in the work first. Like, you know, a lot of these guys are making tactical folders. And I said, all right, first, you got to make a folder with a full back bar because otherwise you don't have a place to put a spring or anything else. And nobody has stepped up yet to try to show me that they're willing to put in the work. It's not easy. I think one of the, one guy who um, we met in Nashville early on was Hank Nickmeyer, who at that time was a, uh, an art professor and was you know, deeply into making Damascus and was making awesome straight knives. He did a lot of stuff with cast sterling nipples, which is just wild. It's like, wait, what is that on the pommel of your knife? Is that, oh, no kidding. Uh, wait, really? <laughs> anyway, yeah, really. So uh, well, um, right. towards the end of the show, I had a folder that I hadn't sold and he was really interested in, you know, in making some liner locks. Uh, that was the same show where we met Kit Carson who had at the same time separately, we had all kind of come to the same conclusion about solid back liner locks. Um, he did it a little differently than we do. And we saw him and he saw us and we're like, Oh man, that's, this, wow, that's cool. Anyway, um, I traded Hank a liner lock for like five feet of steel because he was selling steel and I was selling a liner lock. Cool, awesome, and maybe a year later, might have been less. I made him a switchblade in exchange for another mountain of Damascus. Man, we were working off that steel for years, um, and I remember I made him the knives, and I wrote a letter explaining what I did and why. Um, and took it from there. You know, same deal, man. He had to crawl inside that ship in a bottle, fight those demons scrap those parts yeah that's that's pretty far out kit carson um yeah would right go on to do crkt collaborations and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and that's wild okay. he was like one of the only guys doing a solid back liner lock back around 1990 hmm. 
us, him, and the Valentins all came upon the same idea, all did it a little differently, um, but came upon the same idea at the same time. Oh, that is, it's it's funny how how ideas work like that, like um, a collective unconscious. You know, no nobody knew what anybody else was doing, but they were working on on similar ideas in a similar time frame. You know, you got you got some guy standing out in the uh, Sahara Desert, and you got another guy standing in the Yucatan Peninsula, and they're both like, you know, what would look awesome here? Giant triangles, <laughs> <laughs> just huge ones, like like massive. Huge. Like yeah. just really just like this looks cool now, but wait till we put the triangles here. It's gonna be exactly. nuts. It's gonna be nuts. Wow. Okay. Cove cutlery, huh? Uh hey, do you know where Ron is? Is Ron still involved in knives? Ron is no longer with us. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So he is doing knives then. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Just on a whole different level. Just a whole yes. different level. Maybe three years ago. Oh, man. So that was right around the time I moved to North Carolina. Okay. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good segue. So uh, the unfortunate passing of, of Bill... Um, yep. relatively, uh, you know, give or take recently. Um, yeah. Uh, Bill and I had become estranged. We were no longer on speaking terms. You know, there had been, you know, smack was spoke. Um, and it was an unfortunate ending to, you know, a very long time. Our, whether our creative relationship did not survive his divorce from my mother or their relationship didn't survive ours is an open question. And, uh, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm sorry it ended the way it did. Um, I really am. Uh, but none of us gets out alive. And, uh, you know, that is that. Yeah. That, that is unfortunately true. Or, or, or fortunately matter just reconstitutes somewhere else into some other thing. Uh, Giant triangles. Right, exactly. That's the <laughs> triangles are there. Um, so that's, where, what, that's what happens to the matter. Yeah, right. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, uh, so where do, you, where do you stand currently with knives? You, you have knives, you collect well, knives, after, you think about knives? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have knives, I collect knives, I think about knives, I carry knives. I, I am a knife nut. Um, when Bill and I, like I said, tried to get the band back together and it wasn't jiving. You know, I, I kind of assembled a certain amount of tools in my garage, but my head and heart wasn't really there. And I was, I had all these ideas. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Um, which in retrospect is a bunch of horseshit. And it was difficult to navigate the, uh, the minefield. So basically nothing happened. Um, and then, okay, by that time, Sheila and I were on our second house that we lived in, the third total fixer-upper we had done. We had been in this house for 14 years, which was too, too long to be in one place. It was a, a, a colonial built in 1790, and we completely redid it, which was just brutal. Uh, 
So it is time to go. So all that machine shop worth of tools gets packed up into crates, put in the truck. Um, we had picked a house down here. It's like, yeah, this is awesome. Part of what was awesome about this house that we looked at was the outbuildings. You know, I had a workshop. There was a barn where she could more seriously pursue her hobbies. Um, and I could more seriously. So we're, we're going to go down there. We're going to buy this house. We're going to do what we're going to do. And, you know, if, if you, uh, if you think you have a plan, that's exactly when God or the universe or whoever it is laughs at you, not with you. <laughs> yeah. So that's... we're, we're driving down the road when we find out that that house is just a complete non-starter. That's not going to happen. We come down here. Long, twisted story short. We were under pressure. We had to do something. Uh, which led us to buying the house that we're in. Which, you know, I overlooked stuff. Stuff that, to be fair... Sheila pointed directly at, and I'm like, no, 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 that's not that big a deal. <laughs> but that's nonetheless, fine. that's fine. We buy the house, and then it turns out to be just a, it was supposed to just be, we're going to redecorate, and we'll still have enough money, you know, from selling the house and so on. We'll have enough money to just redecorate the house and build a workshop. Turns out there was about $40,000 worth of stuff that the home inspector hadn't really quite grasped. Um, and it just smacked us down. So I still have a knife shop worth of tools in storage. Um, ended up taking a boring municipal job that for a while I was really bitching about. It's like, look where I have been versus where I am. Oh, woe was me. Boo, hoo, hoo. But I got to tell you what, I've been real grateful for it lately. When <laughs> yeah. Everything has been what it's been. You know, so I, I'm chugging along doing that. I also have a little side business in garage door repair, uh, which, you know, makes a little cash. I don't really have a place yet to set up my, my tools. I'm looking at uh, like used campers and mobiles and stuff like that. I'm going to try to buy a structure of that sort to put them in and then just put up a, an electrical pole to run it. Um, I don't think I would want to try to recreate what I was doing before. There's a number of knives in me that I need to get out that had nothing to do with what any of the collectors or dealers that I was dealing with 20 years ago would have wanted to hear anything about, and I don't care. All right. Okay. <laughs> so there's some stuff I want to make. Um, I love switchblades. Um, I'm okay with automatic knives, but I love switchblades. Uh, daggers. And one of the things that really bit me as a kid, um, two books. One of them was my father gave me this coffee table book of the treasures from King Tut's tomb. And back in the 70s, you used to be able to get these uh, books. You would get a, a read-along book and a set of albums of it being read. And they had The Hobbit and the whole treasure hoard of those two sources bit me when I was like eight years old. And I have always and continued to have a, a, a hankering for treasure, but instead of like 
I'm going to go out and find a buried treasure. No, I'm, I make treasure. Uh, and that was always an aspect of the knife making and the switchblade making that I really liked is that you make these things. And I mean, I talk to people even now, and this is still stuff that they treasure. I talked to uh, a buddy of mine just about a week ago who I hadn't spoken to in a decade or two. And uh, a mutual friend of ours had bought one of my knives. Uh, he was a tattoo artist out in Seattle. And he had bought this knife and then he sold it because he needed, you know, probably like money to work on his house or some nonsense. And he's now trying to find the guy he sold it to. So he wanted to know if I knew who that was, where that guy is, so he could try to track it down and get it back. Yep. I, <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar with that story. I think. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, this is like spread over like close to 20 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That wouldn't know. be Steven, would it? Uh, yeah, it's Steve's buddy, Jim. I talked to Steve. Uh, Jim had bought this. He had commissioned a piece. He had a, a, tattoo, a, a tattoo artist, and he had a tattoo of the Sanskrit Om. And he wanted the Om on the trigger. Um, and so I made him this nice, long, lean, but really rugged um, ivory-handled switchblade with the Om on the trigger. And... Uh, there was a great story of it being used in the real world in a way that, I don't know, I ain't going to go public with it, but it was pretty bitching. <laughs> it, it, it acquitted itself quite well with minimal scuffing to the tip. Uh, but yeah, again, he runs into a jam and uh, Doc Briggs bought the knife from him. Uh, Doc Briggs, if you're catching this, um, Jim's hoping he'll sell him the knife back. Wow. Full full circle on that one. Okay. Right, right, right. Wow. I mean, it's knives. So I've, I know Chuck's heard me drone on about this previously and, and we've talked about it, but so, I mean, these things are created out of crude materials or refined materials, whatever. They are created out of materials. And then at some point they are released into the wild. And then either a, they live forever and are never seen again, or they live forever and they reappear in different people's hands in different collectors and different dealers. And sometimes back with the maker, but I mean, it's, it's tough to wrap your head around. And you know, you describe to people, you're like, okay, so these guys, these knife makers make these knives and, and that's it. I mean, they exist now and the knife is never going away. I mean, it might get lost for a century in someone's box in a house or something, but the physical object just doesn't, doesn't fade away it doesn't you know it doesn't nothing happens to it it just exists that's it so i mean it's it is it is crazy sometimes how one knife can often be tracked through through history from different owners and friends of friends or or whatever it's let me tell you the story of one of the coolest artifacts i have ever held in my hand uh there was an ncca annual and they would and I don't know if they still do, but they would give a free display table to a collector who just wanted to display and not sell. So anyway, somebody had met this guy who was into Chinese bronze. He just collected Chinese bronze stuff. So this this guy had you know arrowheads, um, spear points, uh, a crossbow lock. 
that was still functional because it was made in bronze. This was all from the Bronze Age. You know, so we're talking, what, three or 5,000 years old, right? Yeah, just, mm -hmm, yeah. So the bulk of his collection was excavated at this one particular battle site. He had a dagger that was distinctly different looking than the rest. And well, where does this come from? Well, it was found at that same battle site, but it is at least a thousand, if not 2,000 years older than that. And it didn't come from China. It came from Central Europe. So you've got this dagger that had spent a millennia used, passed around, passed down through antiquity across what, 10,000 miles of space before it was lost in battle 3,500 years ago. It like, was... That's insane. That's a, yes. The, the, yes. Yeah. The, the guy who made energy. that knife is immortal. Right. Oh, wow. Man. Yeah. And, and, and I held the work that that guy made. It blew my mind. And, and I... I've always wanted, that's another kind of knife that I'd like to do is I, I'd love to do some Bronze Age looking stuff. I'd love to carve some models. Uh, I'd love to do some of that. And I just really haven't gotten around to it. I did some, some brass knuckles, but that's not quite the same. <laughs> well, you know, it's still a weapon. So it's in that it's a similar category. And it'll still last a oh, yeah. long, long time. Oh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, it's, yeah, that, that just, it's nuts. I can't even, yeah. gener generations of passing something like that down or, or using it in different, yeah. different areas of the world. It's, it's a millennia yeah. before it gets lost in battle. And now it's many millennia since it was just so mind blowing. And this is the kind of stuff you find at knife shows, you know, the knife collectors. I mean, obviously there's a lot of, knife collectors who collect guns okay awesome you get to talk to these collectors you get to see some really cool stuff but they're not all knife and gun guys they're also uh collectors of you know painting lithography sculpture um carved pipes i mean you just find guys who collect cool stuff and many of them will have a knife collection and you get to talk to these guys and well, what got you into this? And it's like, well, I collect these too. It's like, I had no idea that was a thing. Wow. Yeah. yeah it's so awesome. It is, it is pretty, it is pretty crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. The knife world is a, the knife world is a unique and beautiful thing. It is. Um, so it, it sounds like, okay. So it sounds like you've, you've, you've taken a breath from knives they're still there and you've still like you said which was very eloquent you you still have some knives in you that you need to you need to get out i do okay all right wow so we should um we should for sure be looking into the future for for these for these knives at some point man i hope so i mean one of the common threads in my adult life has been postponing stuff until I can get this other thing done. And then this other thing takes twists and turns and I'm suddenly where I had no concept I would be. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's the, the make, make plans and God laughs kind of thing. Right. Wow. 
right. Um, is there uh, is there anything that we haven't gone over that you that you want to go over? Obviously, I like to talk, man. I could keep, I could just keep going. Uh, but no, I, I think I think we probably kind of reached a reasonable wrap up point with with this. I mean, there's so much more about about Bill, about his work, my work, our work, uh, about the guys that we knew. I mean, it was a it was a rarefied atmosphere. There were some really amazingly talented guys. Uh, some of them you've had on your show, and some more I, I can't wait to hear from. Uh, knives are a canvas that you can really run with and somebody will still buy it. So you get very talented people, you know, polymath, genius level talented people expressing themselves through this medium. And man, we could just go on and on about that, but that's, I think that's the perfect place to wrap. Right on. Okay. I, I dig it. I dig it. Well, uh, well, I really appreciate you coming on I, I appreciate you taking time and you know this is uh it's it's important to to get some of this history down you know i think that's uh a lot a lot of what what we're trying to do with the with the podcast and uh and i think that you've absolutely added to that that section of history and, and opened up the the map a little on that so i, I appreciate that well, hey i really appreciate what you're doing with this podcast and i, and I appreciate you inviting me to be a part of it Right on. Um, thank you, uh, Chuck. Do you have anything else to add? Uh, no, I think I'm, I'm good. I think uh, I learned a lot, and I was happy to contribute some as well. Kick ass. All right, uh, Jason. I want to thank you for coming on, and um, hopefully we can we can have you on again and uh, and tell some more stories. Well, thanks. Thanks very much, Jeremiah. I'd be glad to come back. Cool. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Over and out. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in to another awesome episode of the Bladeology podcast. I want to thank Jason Williams for his great contribution to knife making and the knife making industry through the Axis Lock and taking time today to come on and talk with us about the history involved and some cool stories from going to shows. I also want to thank Chuck for coming on as a, as a guest host, man. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Uh, find me on Facebook and Instagram under Gedritis Knives. And this is Chuck Gedritis signing off. And this is Jeremiah Burbank from PVK Vegas. I will see you guys next time. Don't forget, wear your safety goggles, tuck in those detent tracks, and thank a knife maker. Uh, I hope that the uh, the occasional f bomb. That's just the way I talk. I hope I didn't exceed the limits. <laughs> wor wor worse has been said. True. These are knife makers. <laughs> yeah.